I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Riff around the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Tim, and you are listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. So this is going to be part two in our discussion on the covenant of works. And what we're trying to do is give a biblical defense for the covenant of works as it has been defined by Protestant Reformed Orthodoxy. Now, just to clarify, we are Reformed Baptists, but everybody else on the network, I, I believe, is a Presbyterian which would include uh, Timothy Kaufman, Pastor Patrick Hines, and Steve Matthews. But Carlos and I are Reformed Baptists, but in this area of theology, the Reformed Baptists hold the same view as the Presbyterians. Now, there is a little bit of difference when we get to the covenant of grace, and hopefully we can tackle that in a future episode. But we are trying to defend the theological view that God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And we noted last time in part one that there were entire schools of theology, such as New Covenant Theology, which actually deny that there's a covenant of works. Now, let me just also qualify that by saying that not every branch of New Covenant Theology would deny this. Um, I know that the progressive covenantal guys would hold to some form of an Adamic covenant or a covenant between God and Adam, but they wouldn't necessarily agree with all of its parts as expressed by the Reformed Baptists or the Presbyterians. But uh, for the most part, what we've seen is that many New Covenant theologians do reject the idea that there's any sort of covenant between God and Adam and the Garden of Eden. And what we're going to do is we're going to uh, get into the hermeneutics, because what we've heard a lot of New Covenant theologians say is that we are imposing our theological system onto the text. And what we are saying is that if they were consistent with their own professed hermeneutical method of progressive revelation, taking progressive revelation seriously, that they would arrive at the same conclusions that we're arriving, because that's exactly what we're doing. We are looking past Genesis to see what God has said about this. And obviously, we talked about uh, marriage being a covenant. Uh, we gave some examples that, um, that that show that not every covenant has to be labeled as a covenant when it's ratified, but God could later, as he's progressively revealing uh, knowledge and truth through scripture, he could later reveal that there was a covenant. And we saw that with marriage. And so we're going to go ahead and continue. What we're going to do first is play a clip from our old friends at Conversations from the Porch just to illustrate, I think, a difference in how we see biblical theology versus systematic theology. Now, these guys are not completely against systematic theology, but we do think that they prefer a biblical hermeneutic over a systematic hermeneutic. And um, I know, Carlos, you, you said that you had some things that you wanted to address in this clip. Now, let me go ahead and let everybody know where we're pulling this from. This is from Conversations from the Porch, episode number 42, titled, Is Progressive Covenantalism Antinomian? An interview with Dr. Stephen Wellam. This is at the 38-minute mark. I believe it's um, 
Paul Kaiser, who asks the question concerning biblical theology versus systematic theology. Uh, let me also point out that these guys are not podcasting anymore, but they are welcome to engage us at any level. We certainly want to uh, be respectful. This is not a criti- criticism against them per se. We are just simply trying to address the theological uh, difference. We, we do think that there might be a little bit of a theological difference here. So let's go ahead and play the clip, and then I'm going to hand it over to Carlos to let me know what he thinks. So if I was to put what you just said into a soundbite, would this be an accurate representation that your biblical theology is going to drive your systematic theology? Yes, and, and I think even um, – and adding even a distinction, biblical theology is going to drive systematic because you can't have theological conclusions without – doing justice to the whole Bible, which is biblical theology. But systematic theology is different in that it's building on the whole Bible, but depending on the doctrine, uh, there are pieces that have to be put together. And, and some of those pieces um, are requiring more sort of theological or faith-seeking understanding kind of way of putting things together versus more of a directness of maybe indirect direct. So, for instance, in the doctrine of the Trinity – uh, you get that from the whole Bible. God has unfolded his plan. He's revealed himself um, uh, across the canon, the coming of Christ, the giving of the spirit. We see that God is a triune God. Yet as we think through how the persons relate to one another, uh, you know, there's a lot of vocabulary that is introduced to try to make sense of biblical data. It's a little bit different than the doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. The doctrine of the church is much more direct, right? I mean, it's Okay, here's the people of God of the old. Here's the New Testament nature of the church. So systematic theology is built off of biblical theology. Biblical theology is driving it. It's, it's where if, you, if your theology is true to the Bible, you've got to be true to the whole Bible, right? right? Which is biblical theology. Uh, yet certain doctrinal areas, uh, providence has to wrestle with biblical truths, but then has to sometimes incorporate um, you know, uh, discussions such as sovereignty, freedom, right. the Bible says God's sovereign, uh, we are free, but what does that look like? How do I um, uh, make sense of that, especially when, uh, you know, people are lose, lost a loved one. You say, well, how is God providential here? Or a critic comes and says, you know, this is contradictory. Uh, it's part of theology's task is to have that not only constructive sense of putting pieces together, but also a defensive uh, sense, an apologetic sense to it, defending uh, the truth. And each doctrinal area is different, but you're exactly right. Uh, systematic theology is built off of the whole Bible, which is biblical theology. So biblical yeah. theology must inform our systematic theological conclusions. Right, right. When, when we, we, we first started out, and that was the assertion that we made, I mean, we created a firestorm. I mean, people were saying, you deny systematic theology, this and that, and how can you even approach theology without systematic theology? And we were trying to argue that, hey, we're not throwing out systematic theology. We're just putting it in its proper place. And it should get its growth and outworking from the Bible and from the Bible storyline. And um, yeah, so I'm glad to all right, so that was the clip, and uh, Carlos, I know that you you had some uh, some stuff that you wanted to say about this, so I'll just let you take it away. Yeah, so this uh, it's really fascinating because this this dialogue illustrates one of the major differences between covenant theology and new covenant theology, and also between progressive covenantalism and the other new covenant theology camps. And I think, I believe, Paul was referring largely to us when we started to criticize them for saying that, you know, your biblical theology should inform your systematic theology and it should drive it and, and so on and so forth. Um, but the reason, we, the, the reason we were criticizing them for that uh, is, is not because that statement is wrong per se. It's not that that statement is wrong. It's that it's incomplete. It's not the full picture. And so... Well, I'm just, you know, he basically gave a, a long-winded explanation of how it's important for, uh, obviously, for systematic theology to be uh, undergirded by a sound biblical theology. But then the, the, the interesting thing here is that Wellam 
has a very gentry and wellum they have a very solid understanding of what biblical and systematic theology are and and i i found very little that i disagreed with on when and in, in his prolegomena in the kingdom through covenant uh, i thought it was excellent it was outstanding and i really appreciated what he what he described as uh, biblical and and systematic theology because what he means by biblical theology is that it's seeking to understand the bible right and so all they really had to do was read the first paragraph of the preface of the book. And so, here's the preface. The design for Kingdom Through Covenant is based on the conviction that biblical and systematic theology go hand in hand. To be specific, systematic theology must be based on biblical theology, and biblical theology in turn must be founded upon exegesis that attends meticulously to the cultural, historical setting, linguistic data, literary devices and techniques, and especially the narrative plot plot structure that is the larger story which the text as a unitary whole entails and by which it is informed to the converse is also true exegesis and biblical theology is not an end in itself but a means to the larger end of doing systematic theology which simply attempts to bring all of our thought and life captive to scripture and thus under the lordship of christ so there you have it, folks. This is almost exactly the same thing that we have been saying all along at Semper Reformanda Radio. These guys have almost the exact same view that we have about biblical and systematic theology. Because you don't stop at biblical theology and it's not an end in itself. And, you know, I remember uh, conversations from the uh, from the porch also joking about it one time. I think Pastor Paul made a joke about how if if New Covenant theology was to write a systematic theology, it would probably be like a biblical, more like a biblical theology. And so the interesting thing about that is that uh, these guys, progressive covenantalists, um, don't, they, that's not their method. That's only half of the method that they use. The other half, like I just illustrated, is to show that it's not an end in itself, but it's also seeking to formulate the systematic theology to, to harmonize everything together. And here's another quote that, that I got from uh, Gentry and Wellam on a basically a response to their to one of their book to, to one of the reviews of their book they say this as humans our minds work by using analysis and synthesis in tandem the same is true in biblical exegesis and theological construction we create understandings of the whole by dissecting and studying its parts and conversely we understand the parts in light of the whole as we go back and forth between analysis and, and synthesis, we refine our understandings of both the parts and the whole. So this is what we've been saying all along. And this is what, the, you know, a, a lot of New Covenant theology proponents deny or they undermine or they are inconsistent in. They will say, well, biblical theology should drive your systematic theology, but they don't say the converse. And the converse is what Wellam and Gentry emphasized is that the systematic theology also informs your biblical theology and that's why it's so important to draw out implications the implications of your of your doctrines because but in doing so it helps you to see if you're being consistent with the whole of scripture because when you don't do that you don't properly give yourself the ability to tie in together everything as a whole to construct a coherent systematic theology and that way that actually helps you to make sure if your biblical theology is sound that's one of the tests for knowing that your biblical theology is sound. It's not just by checking the immediate context, it's by checking to see if it harmonizes with the with the rest of your understanding of scripture as a whole. So, I'm going to reread Blake I'm going to read Blake White's definition of new covenant theology, okay? So, Blake White says this, new covenant theology is a biblical theological system that strives uh, to use biblical language when possible, takes the progressive nature of revelation seriously, and sees the new covenant as the goal and climax of the previous biblical covenants. So there you have it once again. There is a clear bias to prefer and to and to and to emphasize biblical theology over systematic theology. And it's not that you know, because they will say, no, we're not against systematic theology. We're not against systematic theology. But we just showed how they how, we just showed how their method actually undermines systematic theology. And not only that, um, that when they when when you're talking about Biblical theology, um, oh man, I just went blank, shoot, I just went blank, and it was about what we were just talking about. Um, well, that's all right, let me, uh, let me go ahead and jump in here, because I'm sure that you're going to remember once we uh, 
continue with this. Um, what, what we want to drive at here and what we're trying to submit is that in order for our New Covenant theologian friends to take their principle of progressive revelation seriously, they would need to have a stronger emphasis on systematic theology. But that's really kind of not what we see. We Instead, we see that they emphasize biblical theology, sometimes to a fault. And um, this brings me to point number four in uh, Robert Raymond's systematic theology, in which he's giving an exegetical basis for the presence of a covenant in Genesis. Um, so on page 430, point number four, he writes, The New Testament parallels between Adam and Christ... And then he references Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, imply that just as Christ was the federal representative of the new covenant, um, and then he references uh, Luke 22 and Hebrews 9.15, so also Adam acted as a federal representative of a covenant arrangement. Now, I know that, uh, Carlos, we're not going to get into all of those passages of Scripture, but this is, is basically looking to the rest of Scripture to see what it says about Genesis, because a lot of times when we're talking about the covenant of works, we see a lot of our New Covenant theologian friends uh, point back to Genesis and, and demand for answers in Genesis and say, where in Genesis does it say that there's a covenant? And what we're saying is that you need to take progressive revelation seriously because uh, we're, we're not just going to get stuck in Genesis. So, Carlos, I know that you wanted to I know that you wanted to go over uh, Romans chapter 5. Right. And uh, so yeah. let me go ahead and give you an opportunity to do that, and maybe you'll, you'll remember what you were going to say. Yeah, thank you. So now I remember what I was going to bring up previously, and this is the point about regarding um, New Covenant theology uh, proponents that they have a they tend to resist making... They tend to resist sy uh, systematic theology. And one other uh, manifestation of that aside from what we've already covered is the fact that they're not necessarily against coming up with a system but the problem that they have is that they have a because they because a lot of them tend to undermine the use of logic to us to a certain extent and you and owen did we you know covered in an entire episode basically uh reading uh quotes by new covenant theologians like uh, john riesinger uh basically undermining to a large part the the role of logic and and how integral it is and when you with theology to theology and understanding the Bible, um, because what they tend to do is they 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 say well, and th this is when we we also criticize the David Gay quote about how New Covenant theology is not a system. And what they mean by that, what they really mean by that is that well, it can be a system for you, but don't put it on, don't impose that on me. Like it might be your system, but they they basically don't want anything that's a system placed on anything that's not that's higher than than a church so anything that's beyond the level of just a church they're very uncomfortable with imposing quote unquote a theological system and so that's a major problem because if you if your conclusions are valid if your theological conclusions are valid then it is binding it is true it's not just it's not just true for you but not for me because i have to make my own the theological conclusions and they may be different from yours that's not that's not how this works and so that's another major problem, a major difference that underlies, um, you know, the, the the people who have a more fuller, consistent method of theology, of doing theology, like the Reformed tradition and like these progressive covenantal guys. Um, but but let, I want to have some fun here. You got you all might for those of you who followed us earlier, in our earlier episodes and when we started talking about New Covenant theology, um, I want to throw down the gauntlet again, one more time. And this time, it's about, uh, obviously, what we've been talking about, the covenant of works. And in order to, to, to kick this off, uh, why don't you play the, the, the clip, Tim, of, of uh, the conversations from the porch interview with Doug Gooden. Yeah, and let me go ahead and point out that this was the same clip that we played in part one. We're just going to play it again because uh, this was uh, really what we set out to do is to uh, take on the challenge that Pastor Doug Gooden is laid out before us, and uh, you'll hear that in a minute if you didn't hear part one. But um, this is Conversations from the Porch, episode number 52, and um, the title of that episode is Interview with Pastor Doug Gooden, Cross Crown Ministries, and this is right around the one hour and four minute mark. I love to talk. You know, I love to talk theology, love to talk uh, 
Now you're in the right place then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see that. Well, I've got a question here, Chris. Watch this. Garden covenant, right. no garden covenant. <laughs> no. No. All right. <laughs> That's from Missouri originally. Uh, show me. Oh no, the show me is not there. <laughs> yeah, it's the only covenant in the Bible that the Bible doesn't call a covenant. You don't know that, Paul? Oh, man, there we go again. Okay, well, I'll give you. Let's say there is a covenant. What are the terms? <laughs> what are the stipulations? What's the sign? The oath. Oh, that's good. That's good. What did God promise? <laughs> he always makes promises. What's the promise? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I still have not seen why our new covenant brothers, why they feel the need to go there. Cause I, I don't see how it helps anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I, just I don't know. I, 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 just think, I think long has, has some good argumentation and uh, From the Bible. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Okay, so that was the clip, and uh, just two things right there. Um, we do believe that this is a covenant that is named as a covenant. Uh, we see that in Hosea 6-7, and, um, and we are making our case from the Bible. So um, e even though uh, Pastor Doug Gooden made that comment about making this, uh, making our case from the Bible, that, that's exactly what we're doing. We've, we've uh, not really made a case from anything but the scriptures. So um, Carlos, I see that you're chomping at the bit. I, I know that you want to throw down the gauntlet, so uh, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so here's here's the thing. Let's throw down the gauntlet. Um, and, and I'm gonna do it this way. I want I'm gonna issue I'm gonna issue out a, a challenge and then satisfy the terms of that challenge, speaking in covenant language, uh, no pun intended. Um, so I can actually prove to you, that there is a covenant of works from the Bible with two Bible words to top it off. Bible words. A simple Bible phrase. Um, I can You can prove it with a simple Bible phrase that you can find in the Bible. And, um, and I, want, I want people who are listening, our listeners, to, to think about this for a second. Think about what that would be, what those two words would be, especially New Covenant folks. Um, just think about that. And when you think, when you've thought about it, you can, you know, pause it. When you thought about it, you do, you know, you can play the continue playing. But um, so, Tim, what do you say to that? What do you, what do you think that is? Well, hold on, hold on. Let, let me do this. Uh, let me, uh, let, let me play some music for our listeners and give them a few seconds to think about it. <laughs> nice. All right, time's up. Um, so yeah, I already know what it is because we talked about it. So I'll just let you uh, let you take it away. Right. So this Bible phrase is the simple phrase in Adam. Okay. This simple Bible phrase illustrates it proves to you from the Bible that there was a covenant with Adam made in the garden. Okay. So let, let's digest that a little bit. This is what's so what's so disappointing with New Covenant folks who talk about this issue. You heard Doug Gooden talk about how I don't see a covenant in Genesis. You've heard the conversations from the porch repeatedly say, I don't see a covenant in Genesis. You've heard um, even their interview with Jeff Volker. He says the exact same thing. I don't see a covenant in Genesis. Um, but the problem is that they are under, they're going against their own method, their own method of theology. And just to rehearse what I read previously on uh, uh, Blake White's definition of New Covenant theology. New Covenant theology is a biblical theological system that strives to use biblical language when possible, takes the progressive nature of revelation seriously. Okay? Takes the progressive nature of revelation seriously. And with that point, we agree. And because of that point, we're calling out New Covenant theologians who say that there is no covenant in Genesis. Because you're not supposed to just go to Genesis and try to hypothesize about, well, there's no covenant there because there's not this and that and the other, when you still have the entire rest of the Bible to account for. Like, for example, Romans 5, 12 through 21, or 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about in Adam, in Christ, the, the first Adam, the last Adam. 
See, and when people start really digging into what those interpretation, what the what that phrase means, what in Adam means, you have a very limited number of options. And there's only one option that actually makes sense when you really start to look at it, when you look at it carefully. And so uh, it was actually pretty interesting because, uh, and I don't know if you want to play the clip. We might not have to play the clip unless you want to with Jeff Volker. But Jeff uh, actually brings up those verses and he said, well, if there was, if you were going to see something, you would see it in Romans 5 when Paul is talking about it. It's like, well, yeah, that's what he's talking about. And that's exactly what he's saying. I mean... Let's so here's what we'll do next. Let's go to let let's go to Romans five and chop it up. Okay, so Romans five, Romans five. Um, let me see if there's anything else that I need to bring up before I I keep going. Um, so Romans five, right? We are in a very critical uh, passage in the Bible when. You know, all of Romans is basically giving you the big picture perspective of the Bible, right? It's a it's a very it's a sort of a, it's almost like a confessional systematic overview of script of, of the entire counsel of God being presented in one uh, succinct, coherent letter. And in Romans 5, he's talking about a, a very important concept in the Bible, right? Um, I'm going to start in verse 12 with the New King James. So, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death, death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but it, sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to, to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment, the, the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Verse 18, continuing. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered so that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through uh, righteousness, to eternal life through Christ our Lord. So um, that's the, the obviously the major the major passage that we're discussing. And then Robert Raymond listed a few other passages that I wanted to review as well. Um, one of them being First uh, Corinthians fifteen, uh, chapter yeah fifteen, starting in verse twenty. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become first the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all, sh all shall be made alive. So there you have it. The verse is so explicitly clear. There, there's an obvious parallel that Paul is making between in Adam and in Christ, right? So when you're making a parallel, there has to be an exact univocal point of contact between those two comparisons. If, if one of those is not univocal or and um, in other words it's not equivocal it's univocal meaning they both have the same meaning in both contexts then you are not properly understanding the comparison that is being made okay yeah there has to be univocal elements in each one of them to tie them together exactly so so like if you were going to say an apple and orange are similar or you know because they're both a fruit they're, they're both a fruit. They're both yes. round. They both are edible. Those right. are univocal elements that tie those those two things together to be a parallel. Right. And we see the same thing here between Christ as the second Adam, and it says it explicitly. He's the second Adam. Right. Um, the first and, and the, the last first Adam. Adam. Yeah. Right. So so let's unpack this a little bit more. What does that mean then? What is that univocal point of contact between in Adam and in Christ? Okay, and there's been different interpretations of that, uh, you know, throughout the history of the church. And so, um, 
I'm going to read a commentary by William Barclay on his commentary on Romans. And I don't think that he was a believer. Uh, but he has some he has some insightful things here and there. But just be warned, he, he's not somebody that, you know, we would recommend or endorse. Because he's, he, I don't think he was a believer. But um, here he illustrates some of those. And you'll see why to some extent when I read here. So... I'm going to read on page 79 of his uh, letter commentary to the letter of and daily style daily study Bible commentary to the letter of the Romans letter to the Romans. So Paul said Paul says that all men sinned in Adam. If we are ever to understand Paul's thought, we must be quite sure of what Paul means, and we must be quite sure that Paul what Paul that Paul meant what he said. All through the history of the Christian thinking, there have been efforts to interpret this conception of the connection between Adam's sin and mankind in different ways. Number one, the passage has been taken to mean that each man is his own Adam. This really means that just as Adam sinned, all men have sinned, but that there is no real connection between the sin of Adam and the sin of mankind. Other than that, it could be said that Adam's sin is typical of the sin of all mankind. So this is a very interesting first uh, view. That is, I, th I believe it's very similar to the SBC traditionalist view who deny the imputation of Adam's guilt, sin guilt, to, to his posterity, to, 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 all of, um, to all of humanity. And so, which is a very dangerous thing to do. A lot of Arminians tend to do that because they, they deny that we are responsible for another man's sin. And so, the Bible says very clearly, in Adam, all die. There's no, you, there's no escaping that. And and what and the by the by the by the disobedience of one man led to condemnation to all men. It, that before we had done anything, we were condemned in Adam. That's exactly what the what the verse means. And you cannot read that any other way. And so and and you will see. Um, I think I have seen some New Covenant theologians deny the imputation of Adam's guilt. They don't believe that Adam's sin guilt was imputed to all mankind. And that's a serious problem. So the second view is uh, continuing Barclay's uh, commentary. There has been what has been called the legal interpretation. This interpretation would hold that Adam was the representative of mankind and that the human race shares in the deed of its representative. But a representative must be chosen by the people he represents. And in no sense can we say that of Adam. So this is really funny. Um, he basically list this view as an incorrect view because we did not get to choose Adam. And so obviously he has a very Arminian bent to this. There's a very Arminian bent to, to, to denying or undermining or, or not accepting these, these pivotal doctrines in the Bible, right? Because it's, it's very much a tendency for, for a, um, somebody who affirms free will to say, well, it should be my choice to decide who gets to represent me in that covenant, right? But do you see any problems with that, Tim? Or that objection? One of the obvious ones is that God is the one who made the covenant. Right. Right? He's the one who imposed the terms. He's the one who made the covenant. He's the one who chose the representatives. And he's the one who gets who, who says whatever. He can do whatever he want with us, right? We're we need to tie in the bigger picture, obviously, to the, the, the fact that we are the vessels and he is the potter. We are the clay, he is the potter. And taking a very, sort of a very... Armenian notion of of we should be able we have a right to choose our own representative that's a very like American legal uh, system notion of objection yeah we didn't we didn't vote for we didn't vote for him exactly yeah you you, you didn't vote for him so that can't, that view can't be correct it's like obviously that has nothing to do with anything that the Bible says about that that's a, that's a ridiculous objection because it's unfounded in scripture there's nothing um, the Bible makes it very clear and we, we don't get to choose our savior either I mean, right. And then, yeah, exactly. And, and not only that, but then what are you going to do when like he wins a popular vote, but then the electoral college votes for, <laughs> yeah. does, would he then not represent the, the people that didn't vote for him? I guess not. I mean, the, the people that, that hate Trump, right. Uh, and, like and say he's not my president. I guess I guess that's where he would be. Like he's not he's not my Adam. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, but, I I didn't vote for him. It's very convenient because people have people they don't want to be accountable for somebody else's sin, but at the same time they have no problem believing in Christ for the for the forgiveness of their sins. And it's like, well, you didn't you didn't get to choose that representative either. Right. God is the one who who made that disposition and made that possible and who chose you. 
for those of you who are Minion. But anyway, we continue. Um, so we're going to obviously touch on the second point in more depth because that's obviously the, the point. That's a, that's the view, basically, the view that, of the Reformed faith. The third, the, Here's the third view. There is the interpretation that what we inherit from Adam is the tendency to sin. That is true enough, but that is not what Paul meant. It would not, in fact, suit his argument at all. Um, so that's basically inheriting the sin nature, right? That which it, which actually is one of the consequences of the fall. We didn't just inherit the sin guilt of Adam; we inherited the sin nature of his uh, decision to break God's covenant because God cursed the the earth, and we also inherit that sinful nature from Adam. And so, uh, so the here's the fourth view: the the only possible interpretation of the passage is what is called the realistic interpretation that because of the solidarity of the human race, all mankind literally and actually sinned in Adam. This was not an idea that was strange to a Jew. It was the actual belief of the Jewish thinkers. The writer of Second Ezra is quite clear about it. Quote, A grain of evil was sown in the heart of Adam from the beginning, and how much wickedness has it brought forth into his time, into this time? And how much shall it yet bring forth till the time of the threshing come? 4.30 uh, Another quote, for the first Adam, bearing a wicked heart, transgressed and was overcome, and not only he, but all they that who are who are also born of him. That's uh, verse three twenty three twenty one. Um, so here, I'm going to keep reading here. The second basic idea is intimately connected with the, this in Paul's argument. Death is a direct consequence of sin. It was a Jewish belief that if Adam had not sinned, man would have been immortal. See, that's that's actually pretty interesting right there. That it was even a Jewish interpret's view that if Adam had not sinned, he would have become immortal, okay? So the, it, this is not originating with covenant theology or with the Reformed thinkers. Um, this goes all the way back to, to Jewish thinkers. And so, death came into this world as a consequence of sin. Sirach uh, 2.23 writes, quote, A woman was the beginning of sin, and through her all die. The book, the book of Wisdom has it. God created man for immortality and made him the image of his own proper nature. But by the envy of the devil, death entered into the world. In Jewish thought, sin and death are in integrally, integrally connected. This is what Paul is getting at in the involved and difficult line of thought in verses 12 through 14. We may trace his thought in these verses in a series of ideas. Number one, Adam sinned because he broke a direct commandment of God, the commandment not to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. And because Adam sinned, Adam, who was meant to be immortal, died. The law did not come until the time of Moses. Now, if there is no law, there can be no breach of the law. That is to say, if there is no law and no commandment, there can be no sin. Therefore, the men who lived between Adam and Moses did in fact sin. But it was not reckoned against them because it was not there was as yet no law. And they could not be condemned for breaking a law which did not exist. And so, uh, the third point. But in spite of the fact that sin could not be reckoned to them, they still died. Death reigned over them, although they could not be accused of breaking a non-existent law. Point number four. Why then did they die? They died because they had sinned in Adam. It was their involvement in the sin of Adam that caused their deaths, although there was no law for them to break. That, in, that in fact, is Paul's proof that all men die, did sin in Adam. And so, here, uh, Barclay is giving his view. And some things he summarizes well, some things he, he gets completely wrong. So, like, the, the example of, the first point was actually pretty good, that uh, he, we, that Adam sinned because he broke the commandment. And then the second point was the fact that because where there is no sin, there is no, there's no, where there is no law, there is no sin. But nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And that's why, that's why infants still die prior to committing any personal sin. Because they are dead in Adam. They, they are suffering the consequence of Adam violating the covenant of works. And so, that's another problem with the Arminian view and with some NCT proponents who hold to this view that um, that the, the guilt, the sin guilt is not inherited, only the uh, only the sinful nature. But the problem with that, obviously, is that why do infants die? Why do people who have not committed any personal sin still die? And that is because they are dead in Adam, right? Because, because of the fact that um, Adam was our legal representative, and therefore, his consequences apply to us as those who were represented by him uh, in that covenant that he broke. And 
he tried to say he he was saying that um that 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 death could not be rec there there was obviously a law right that it wasn't it wasn't explicitly revealed and in the reformed tradition it is it was actually um you know and i wish i had the catechism question where they explain this but the the in the reformed faith historically has taught that god did not just reveal that one commandment to not eat of the forbidden fruit and a lot of New Covenant theologians get this wrong as well. It's ridiculous to say that. Obviously, it was wrong to commit adultery, to kill Adam or to kill Eve, and so on and so forth. The moral law was always binding and it was always there, right? And if you remember my dialogue that I had with uh, Lewis Lyons, I brought this up to him because uh, he, uh, there is a tendency in New Covenant theology to emphasize that law is inextricably, inextricably tied to the covenant. And that's why they argue that because the covenant of Moses is is over, therefore the law that was tied to that covenant is over. But the problem with that is that you still have the moral law to account for. And I know they go by different terms and they have different ways of explaining it. Some of them are similar, some not so much. But in the Reformed tradition, the moral law is that which has always been binding at all times, right? It's always been binding at all times. And that is what the Reformed faith has described as being summarized in the Ten Commandments and summarized even more so by Christ as the two great commandments to love God and to love your neighbor. So those commandments have always been binding on human beings because God instilled that, He revealed that to Adam, and uh, it was innately imparted to us in our conscience. And Romans talks about this. That is why we are also without excuse. Uh, because we do know. We do know God. We do know His law uh, consciously, innately. And so... So what does, this, what does this bring us to? I've heard a lot of some of these New Covenant proponents talk about how they believe that they, they, they take a similar view to the fourth perspective that Barclay talks about, that, that we literally sinned in Adam because we, are, we were physically present in him. And the only problem with that is now, like what we just talked about, what applies to the one has to apply to the other. And that's the problem with that view. It cannot apply to Christ because we are not physically in Christ. We are not descended from Christ because obviously Christ had no children. He had no kids, right? Uh, New Covenant theology has a major problem now because the only way to really make sense of the entire scope of what Scripture has to say about this, not just what Genesis says, but what also Hosea says, what also... Romans says, what Corinthians says, what the New Testament says about us being in Adam, the only way you can make sense of that is the fact that we were legally, covenantally represented in the garden by Adam. And so, again, it's a very simple, this is not that difficult, you know, but, but there's such a strong tendency in New Covenant theology to, uh, to, to undermine, to resist this, because they have such a strong bias against it, that they they don't want to sound like covenant theologians when they when you're exegeting these passages and it's so funny because the ones who do like the kingdom through covenant guys like the progressive covenantalist guys like uh even Gary Long to some extent from as far as I've heard I haven't read his stuff so I can't know for sure but um I I you know we've been reading uh kingdom through covenant and that's why their their view is so similar because they're um, they are much more consistent in their principle of, of using biblical and systematic theology in such a way that both inform the other, that it's not a one-directional from biblical to systematic, but it's bi-directional from biblical to systematic and systematic to biblical, so that you both, you harmonize a coherent view of Scripture. And so, when you do that, and when you account for everything, the only way that that makes any sense is that in Adam means that we were covenantally bound and represented by Adam. The, the only way you can have a, a representative, a legal representative in Scripture, is by way of a covenant. If you want to take exception to that, name one. Because every single case in which there was a representative uh, that God has instituted, it was always by way of a covenant. You have the, you have the obvious example with Christ. Christ as a mediator, right? He's the mediator of the new covenant and all who are in Christ are covenantally in Christ and therefore are forgiven and pardoned from the violation of the covenant that was broken in Adam. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that in Christ means that we're covenantally in Christ. So why would in Adam mean anything different than that? 
and, and we see the parallels between Christ and Adam. I mean, Satan came to tempt Adam and he fell. And Satan came to tempt Jesus and he didn't fall. And so it, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting that you use in Adam to make a defense for the covenant of works. Right. And uh, so, so Carlos, let's wrap it up with this. What, what is the consequence, I think, of denying the covenant of works? Well, um, I still wanted to touch on a, uh, some points here because one of, the, one of the challenges that I wanted to issue out is, or one of the questions I wanted to bring up is, are you guilty of your dad's sin? No, obviously not. And why, why not? Why are we guilt? Why are we not guilty of our dad's sin, but we are guilty of Adam's sin? Because Adam is our federal head. Exactly. Federal means covenantal head. So Adam was our federal head. He represented us in the garden. And that's why we are not guilty of our dad's sin, but we are guilty of Adam's sin. And so you have to tie that in together very carefully. And let's, I want to help some if if there you know for those new covenant theology guys who are listening i want to help you guys out and read once again from uh, uh, uh peter gentry and steve wellham's kingdom through covenant in his third point he says this um biblically biblically and theologically it is difficult to over overestimate the importance of the adam christ t- typological relationship for understanding the storyline of scripture see romans 5 12 through 21 first corinthians 15 20 to 23 yeah, and Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. Scripture is clear that all human beings fall under the representative headship of two people, Adam and Christ. Adam represents all that is tied to the old creation and this present age, characterized by sin, death, and judgment. Christ represents all that is associated with the new creation and the new covenant, and from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, the age to come, characterized by salvation, life, and restoration of what was lost in the fall. This is why scripture ultimately subsumes Jew and Gentile under Adam, so that anyone who is in Adam, given Adam's disobedience, now comes into this world dead in their sins and under the judicial sentence of God. In this way, Adam's headship has the deeper privilege of more than ordinary fatherhood. It also includes the dignity of defining what it means to be human, for he stands not merely as our physical or seminal head, but also also as our covenantal head. Being human, then, is equivalent to bearing Adam's image. 1 Corinthians 15.49 Now, in light of the fall, being in Adam is equivalent to being part of the old creation and an age associated with and characterized by sin, death, and judgment, while being in Christ is equivalent to being part of the new creation and an age associated with salvation and life. As Doug Moo says, all people, Paul teaches, stand between in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them either one belongs to adam and is under sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience or one belongs to christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous act or obedience the actions of adam and christ then are similar in having epochal significance even though as moo rightly notes there is massive discontinuity between the two men these two men in terms of their identity and actions the two men are not equal in power, and Christ's act is able completely to overcome the effects of Adam's. So, there you have it. It's so clearly laid out by even uh, the progressive covenantalist guys that um, that's what in Christ means. Okay, and that's what these uh, that's what this book is arguing. This new covenant theology, uh, kingdom through covenant, is arguing that in Christ means to be covenantally in Christ, and therefore conversely. To be in Adam means to be covenantally in Adam. And so that's exactly what those parallels, the parallels are, are, are so explicit once you realize that there's only one way to understand those passages that talk about in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. For as by, through the, the death and the trespass of one which led to condemnation, so the righteousness and the obedience of the other led to salvation and, and life to, to the many, to the others. And, and to, to go back to the clip that we played earlier by Doug Gooden, you know, he was saying, what are the terms? What are the, and just because, he, and this is another thing that we need to point out, just because the terms are not explicitly laid out as, as clearly as they would like in, in Genesis or even in, in the New Testament, does not mean that there is no covenant. God does not have to, God is not obligated to, to reveal what he doesn't want to reveal. 
he, he can reveal exactly what he wants and how he wants to reveal it. But he has revealed uh, the, the in the New Covenant especially this these passages in such a way that they can only be understood in one way. When you take into account the immediate context and the context of the Bible as a whole. that Right, when, when you apply your own hermeneutical method of progressive revelation. Exactly. When you're consistent with your own with your own supposed view of taking the progressive nature of revelation seriously to the and, and accounting for what it what exactly it means to be in Adam. And so um, to, to, to wrap that up, you know, what are the terms? The terms are very clear. In Adam all die. Those were the terms. If you disobey, you die. Okay? Yeah. That's very clear. In Adam all die. And consequently, because Christ satisfied that disobedience, I mean, right. is read the passage. We just read it. It's it's a let's I'm gonna just reread it. Uh so Romans uh going back to Romans five twelve. Let me let me move the screen. Yeah, here. So Romans five twelve, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God through the end the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the, ju for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation and this is talking about condemnation to all of those who were represented in adam but the free gift which came from one from many offenses resulted in justification for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through, through the one jesus christ therefore as through the one man's offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation that could not be any clearer right there judgment came to all men yeah by way of covenant violation even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so also by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous those terms could not be any clearer the terms are right there. And this is another thing that they're confusing. Because in Genesis, there's a clear foreshadowing. There's a suspense, There's a suspenseful element of mystery that's not revealed until the New Testament. The terms of promise and eternal life are not as explicit in the Old Covenant in the book of Genesis. Because, obviously, God preordained them to fall, for Adam to fall. But also because the one who was going to satisfy those terms was none other than Christ himself. And that's exactly what Romans 5 is explaining to us. Those were the terms. Obedience will give you eternal life and righteousness. Right. Disobedience will give you death and condemnation. That is what Romans 5 is explaining to you. It's explaining to you the terms of the covenant of works and how Adam failed miserably and how Christ succeeded perfectly. And that is a parallel that is also drawn between the desert temptation of Adam. I mean, I'm sorry, the desert temptation of Christ and how he succeeded in the temptation Whereas in paradise, right. uh, Adam and Eve failed miserably. Yeah. And so it could not be any clearer when you tie this all together and you see how it, it, there's no other way to understand this. And, and the thing is that those, those objections really are not that difficult to answer. They're not. When, when you say, w w what was the promise? The promise was eternal life. Exactly. Obedience, righteousness, and eternal life. Exactly, which he failed to accomplish, which is why exactly. Jesus, the second Adam, had to come and, and succeed. I mean, so I want to read uh, from uh, an article on the Trinity Foundation, uh, and we can go ahead and wrap it up here because we've gone a little bit longer than than we, uh, we normally do, but we think that it's necessary because um, it's really, I think, detrimental to uh, the faith that this is being rejected by so many people out there. And, and I mean, it, it, the rejections are pretty shallow and superficial. And, but Robbins writes uh, in, in an article titled Pied Piper, one consequence of this denial of the covenant of works is that if Adam was not a party to the covenant of works, as these men assert, 
then neither was Christ the second or last Adam. Therefore Christ could not, did not, and was not supposed to pay the debts of and earn salvation for his people. As the second and last Adam, Christ did not, by his active and passive obedience, fulfill the law of God, pay the debts of his people, and merit their salvation. Thus the denial of the covenant of works is an attack on the justice of God, on the imputation of Adam's sin to his children, on the active obedience of Christ, on the imputation of Christ's active obedience and righteousness to believers. By denying that Adam and Christ, as federal heads of their representative races, were subject to the covenant of works before the court of God's justice, not his grace, each Adam being required to fulfill the terms of the covenant, one failing miserably and the other succeeding perfectly, uh, the neo-legalists put all believers on probation and make their salvation depend on their own evangelical obedience. Now, let me point out that a lot of the New Covenant theologians have not gone that far because they've not, I think, worked out the the implications of denying this view of, of, a, of a covenant between God and man. But here's the problem, is that the heretics, first of all, let me back up here. New Covenant theology is still developing as a system. The heretics are going to come in and they're going to work out these implications for you. And you may reject the implications because you're inconsistent and you're, you're, you're resisting the, the logically necessary implications. But the heretics are going to come in there and they're going to work out these implications for you and I, I do believe that eventually, uh, if if this is not remedied, that there will be groups within New Covenant theology camps that are heretical. That's already happened. Yeah, uh, I, that's that's what that's what Fourth Stream is, and that's why. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly why, and we've pointed this out already in our earlier episodes. I mean, that's the problem. The the they don't. It's not as bad on their part because they claim ignorance. And whereas people like Piper and these other guys, like these other, you know, people who deny the covenant of works, they have a more explicit uh, way of drawing this stuff out. And so when they deny it, they also they see what happens, like what Robin says, when you start denying the covenant of works within a relatively reformed framework, you run into the trouble of becoming a neo-legalist because you don't have somebody who satisfied the, the obedience that Christ satisfied on your behalf. And so... When that happens, you and and people like Piper deny the works principle as well. And a lot of New Covenant theologians, from what I've seen, they deny the the works principle, not just the covenant of works, but the works principle in the Bible. That if you that you can earn something by working for it and obey and obeying God. We'll probably have to cover that in another one because uh, they. I've heard some of them deny the act of obedience of Christ, and that is that is really problematic. Yeah, yeah, that's a very yeah, exactly. And that's very directly tied to this. So um, and obviously, as you can see, we've 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 had a lot of stuff that we wanted to talk about. And I hope you bear with us. And I hope you New Covenant theologians take a careful listen to this. And I hope you 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 consider really consider what it means to be an Adam and look at what we've what we've laid out. And for, even from your own authors coming from your own uh, your own backyard. Yeah, and, and you know, we've got nothing against conversations from the porch. This is a theological issue. It's a theological disagreement. Uh, I think that we can be mature about it and not get hurt feelings over the fact that we're saying you're wrong. So, Right. It's, we're here to sharpen each other. Iron sharpens iron. That's what we're here to do. And so... Um, what happens when iron sharpens iron? Sparks fly. And it gets hot. <laughs> exactly it gets <laughs> and so it gets there, there's a lot of heat yeah and there's a lot of sparks and some people can't take the heat but hey i mean that's the only way you grow so snowflakes snowflakes can't take the heat yeah <laughs> usually so the that they melt like like wax but the uh no they melt the, like the, snowflakes the, right they melt like water <laughs> how about that um water doesn't melt water boils they melt into water <laughs> whatever they melt into water so so yeah, the so I'm very excited, Tim. I'm very excited that we got to do this. I know it's been a while. Um, I I I I hope to in the near future maybe have a little bit more time to get a few more episodes because we have a lot of them lined up, and I don't want to give any false hopes to people though because anything can happen. 
Yeah, we, we, we know about your situation. Uh, we're not committing you to any uh, future episodes. Obviously, if you're able, if you, if you have a week off or something or, you know, some time off from work and you're able to uh, sift through some of this stuff, then you're always welcome to, to come on the podcast. Um, so I want to say thank you to uh, all of our listeners. And, um, Carlos, we, we will be praying for you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, your situation and... Uh, and just wish everybody a good week. God bless. Bye. Hello, this is Tom Juditis, president of the Trinity Foundation. Thank you for listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. For more information on the Trinity Foundation, please visit our website at www.trinityfoundation.org. There you can read, download, and or print over 300 articles or listen to over 200 mp3 audio lectures and check out our over 65 titles of books and other media and if you are between the ages of 16 through 25 you can enter our 2018 christian worldview essay contest on the topic of the book the emperor has no clothes richard b gaffin jr's doctrine of justification by author stephen cunha thank you and remember the bible alone is the word of god